0: This week's Institute of Ideas podcast is called Shifting Sands, Understanding the Middle East Today, and was recorded at the recent Battle of Ideas Festival at the Barbican in London. The discussion was part of the International Battle Strand, produced in conjunction with Vodafone. Uh,
1: I think we're going to get started. Thank you very much for joining us uh, for this, the final session uh, of this year's Battle of Ideas 2015. As you know, the topic is about shifting sands uh, and is aiming to understand the Middle East today. Um, It was recently said uh, by both a Tory and a Labour MP writing together, Andrew Mitchell and Joe Cox, that the international community has failed in the Middle East, even in its own terms. They say this grand game of chess uh, hasn't been grand or strategic. It's been self-defeating and inept. Uh, Much of this festival this year has been taken up Uh, in various strands and in different ways, um, discussing the new world we find ourselves in, in 2015. Um, After the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq, uh, after the Arab Spring, after the declaration of an Islamic State, and after the collapse uh, of any recognizable Israeli-Palestinian peace process. Uh, After radicalization uh, has come to be seen as much as a domestic issue as an international one. Uh, and So tonight, at this, the end of the festival, um, what we'd like to do, and I'm very pleased to introduce in a moment uh, the panel that will help us do it, um, is debate the old certainties that now can no longer be relied on uh, in the Middle East. Um, so I'll introduce them in the order they're going to speak. They'll have a kind of bri- brief five or so minutes uh, to introduce uh, their approach to the topic. Um, we'll hear first from Professor Gilbert Ashkar, who's uh, from the Development Studies and International Relations Department at SOAS, the School of Oriental and African Studies, and he's also the author uh, of many books, including uh, The People Want. We'll then hear um, from Dr Clara McCormack, who's sitting furthest uh, to your left, who's a lecturer in International Politics at the University of Leicester. Um, we'll hear from Professor Rosemary Collins, who's the Professor of International Politics and Director of the Olive Tree Programme, uh, run out of the city of City University uh, here in London. Uh, and we'll finish with Carl Sharrow sitting at the end of our table. who's um, an architect and Middle Eastern commentator uh, and satirist, better known to the world of the internet, as Karl remarks. Um, so, Gilbert, if you'd like to start us off. Yes, sure.
2: Thank you, sir. And, uh, yeah, thank you for the, the opportunity. Well, four or five minutes to, to explain to you my uh, vision of the, the Middle East is, would be a fantastic feat and probably then it would be better just to, to use a couple of words and stop there. But uh, yeah, let me start from a couple of words and, uh, and go ahead with that. Uh, uh, Arab Spring, that was the, the, the phrase the, the way of, of designating this that prevailed in 2011 with a lot, a lot of hope and, you know, and we can now say a lot of illusions about uh, what was uh, taking place. That's because people believe it was just, you know, a, a democratic transition as uh, is supposed to happen after a, a certain period of, uh, of development in any country, moving from autocracy or dictatorship to, to democracy. Now, the, 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 what was wrong in this assessment was that precisely that was not coming. At the culmination of any kind of development, but that was coming uh, after decades of, of actual stagnation or very slow development and a, a part of the world which uh, had detained the, the records in uh, the number of unemployed, and especially young unemployed, for several decades. So, you had the the accumulation of an explosive potential that exploded in, uh, in 2011 and that wasn't going to be just a political democratic transition. That was a deeply rooted social-economic crisis, therefore uh, it wouldn't stop at constitutions, elections or any such uh, procedures, uh, it needed much more than that. And uh, actually this problem that I mentioned is not only still there, but it is just uh, deepening. I mean, unemployment, the social crisis, the economic crisis, and, and all that. And therefore, what started in 2011 was that uh, what I, I would call a long term revolutionary process, which is the formula I used from the very beginning, and it's it's there to to, to, to stay with us for uh, several decades. It's It has to be seen as one of those long term revolutionary processes that we've known in history, and that usually are not uh, more peaceful than what you have today in the Middle East. Think of the English Revolution, not exactly a very uh, peaceful uh, story. Think of the French Revolution, think of the Russian Revolution, think of any major revolutionary process, and you'll think of civil wars, you'll think of terrible massacres, you'll think of a lot of such problems, and that's what we have. And this is complicated, and I finish with that by the complexity of the problem where you don't have only one revolutionary wave count and facing one homogeneous counter-revolution represented by the ancien regime, the old regime. You have actually, because of the recent history of the region, you have two contending forces which are equally opposed to the basic aspirations of the young people who started in 2011. And those two forces are on the one hand the old regime, which used to be backed most of it by Western powers, the United States most of all, and, uh, and the UK, uh, and the linchpin of which is the the, the Gulf Cooperation Council, that is the, the Gulf uh, monarchies, the Gulf oil monarchies, we should call them. And then you have uh, uh, another, I would say, counter-revolutionary bloc, represented by Islamic fundamentalist opposition that. Uh, grew under the, the old regime and actually were favored by, by them for a while, and uh, which were part of them backed by, by uh, those I mentioned, and others, or other regimes also, and dictatorship backed by other forces like uh, Iran and, and Russia. So this makes it a very, very complicated story, and that's why don't blame yourself if you find it difficult to follow the news of the Middle East and to understand who's who. But uh, that's I- indeed extremely complex and, uh, and well, my final point is that it's we're still just at the very beginning of what will be with us, I think, for several decades. And that's why, although you had a lot of hope at the beginning and a lot of, of, of pessimism now, uh, I, I keep hope uh, in, uh, I mean in a long-term perspective.
1: Thank you very much.
0: on called Soap, and it was an, an American spoof soap opera, you know, taking the Mickey out of Dallas and Dynasty that was popular. And I, I remember it used to begin every episode with these uh, increasingly uh, improbable, ridiculous plot twists that had occurred, and you know, it always, uh, end of, you know, confused, you will be, And uh, just to go on from what I was saying, I have to say, sometimes watching the news and the kind of current politics of the Middle East, uh, it can often seem a little like that. But out of that, the point I would like to draw out or highlight is to focus on current Western foreign policy. My argument is that Western foreign policy at the moment, when it comes to the Middle East, is out of control, absolutely out of control. But I don't believe, as is often argued, it's out of control because America is a kind of hegemonic power running amok in the Middle East. But rather, when one looks at uh, Western policy, for example, in Syria, Western states are acting in a kind of fantasy realm. Deliberate refusal or an explicit refusal uh, to engage uh, with any kind of interest, and even with uh, just with the reality on the ground. And I think Syria is a rather um, depressing and alarming case in point, uh, where, for example, it's well known, it's basically known that the Free Syrian Army our allies supposedly don't really exist, and effectively allied to al-Qaeda-related uh, groups and other you know, very radical ISIS-style groups who you know, probably do not share uh, Western views for a place to Syria. So that's the main thing I want to uh, just bring up at this point, that the kind of out-of-control nature of Western so quick, i a little bit frightened, but I, what I would like to do, given the work has said about the murky landscape and decades before we know where the dust will settle, we are not powerless to do some thinking about where it's all going, but we need to do so in terms of scenario building. That classic exercise which members of the armed forces around the world tend to be very good at and which diplomats and politicians tend to be afraid of because they want the future to be one way and they don't want to alert themselves to some alternatives. Now, if you think of the region at four different layers, one placed on top of the other, think of four disks, if you like, and they're revolving but at different paces. One is at the very local level, the next up is at the regional level, where there's various actors and dynamics and variables operating. Above that, you have at the international level, where you have powers external to the region as the main actors interacting, and pushing or attempting to push the dynamic in different directions, and then just to really complicate things, you have another layer, which I'm calling the demographic layer, which has to do with mass forced migration, mass movements of people, which are a dynamic in and of themselves. Expanding borders, Descending on Europe in relatively tiny numbers, but nonetheless causing a crisis which is transformative to Europe and the European Union itself. Now, my scenarios are simply that there are four of them, and they stem from the idea, the concept, that one of the four discs is predominant, that. Local actors and factors determine the main dynamic, or that the regional actors and factors are more in the driving seat, or that developments at the international level take predominance, or fourthly, that the migration issue overshadows others this is what the four scenarios essentially look like. If the local factors disrupt, undermine the agendas at the regional level and at the international level, and of course migration stems from the local level, you have different pockets, communities, neighbourhoods, individuals, families, militia, entrepreneurs, businesses in Syria and Iraq, on making on a daily and weekly basis calculations about their survival, both economically and physically. They are engaged in struggles which will create the dynamic of the need for revenge, defense of honor, and identity. Very active. Second scenario, happening at the regional level, I would say here, rather than fragmentation, I should have said, the first scenario uh, ultimately is fragmentation. Absence of states, absence of borders, fragmentation. Second scenario is two axes emerging. Now, we've had shifting regional alliances. As of a month ago, we have seen the emergence of the two newest ones, actually owned and labeled by Russia, there is the one that links Iran, Assad, Hezbollah, the Iraqi government, and now some Kurdish groups and Russia, versus the one linking the Saudis, the Qataris, the UAE, some Syrian militia, unified for now under a roughly Sunni Arab banner and loosely backed by the U.S. and its Western allies. That's now. It was not like that with those two discernible axes six months ago, and we don't know on which side Turkey is going to fall. So a lot of dynamic at the regional level, but the main theme at the moment is axes as opposed to states. At the international level, there is the distinct possibility of a standoff between Russia and its volunteer fighters on the one hand, and US and its NATO allies on the other hand. Situation has just been complicated by the potential for a power struggle between those two old powers. And at the demographic level, the refugee and migration flows. Millions displaced inside Syria, millions with a precarious existence and creating a precarious existence for Jordan, Lebanon, Turkey and beyond. That crisis could become the preoccupation for Europe. So I'm saying that ultimately you have four outcomes depending on whether regional, local, international, or migration factors are in charge, one at the local level produces fragmentation, no states, one at the regional level produces two axes, and if the principal drivers are the international ones, you could have U.S.-Russia divisions, which means neither wins, and ISIS benefits.
3: I just want to start by saying I do recognize that this is a very long process of change that we're witnessing uh, in the Middle East, and this is the fifth time I've done a session about it in the Middle East, uh, sorry, in the Middle East, in the Battle of Ideas, and I'm the most pessimistic I've ever been. It's a long process, but all indications are that it's not going to lead where a lot of us wanted it to go at the beginning of the so-called Arab uprisings in 2011. Now, there are a lot of the kind of categories involved and players and different momentums involved that we don't have control over, and they are local in nature. So, to use Rosemary's conceptual model, those operate and will continue to operate all the time. The one that we need to confront and the one that Tara talked about is the role of the West and the US in particular in this uh, picture. And briefly, I think the role of the West and the U.S. in particular has been quite destructive throughout this process. It is probably the single most contributing factor to regional instability. And that hasn't only harmed those countries themselves, but it has led almost um, by kind of blatant sequence of rash and unconsidered moves and a lack of any kind of strategic thinking about what the West and the U.S. actually want from the Middle East, to the destruction of a regional order that the U.S. itself had put in place in the aftermath of the end of the Cold War. And the, kind of the consequences of that were, didn't start in 2011. This started with the invasion of Iraq in 2003, which ultimately led to the rise of ISIS, which remains today the biggest threat regional order and stability. And unlike some people who disingenuously like to kind of separate the kind of intervention that happened in Iraq from what happened subsequently in Libya and then in Syria, those are informed by the same kind of clueless and utterly lacking in kind of any uh, grounding in reality uh, in terms of Western thinking about the Middle East. It's hugely unpredictable, impulsive and therefore highly destructive. And so it had led to the destruction of that order that the U.S. itself had put in place, and it was a very broad security and political order that in the past you could have been against it, and I would have been against it, but at least ensured some sense of regional stability. The consequences of the destruction of that order is things that we see today such as the war on Yemen, which is a savage and brutal war against largely a civilian population that you hardly hear about in the news, carried out by allies of the U.S. and the West. And on the one hand, we have the West saying, look at Syria, and what's happening there is certainly terrible, but we don't hear anything about Yemen. And this is kind of the the two flip sides of this very confused policy and the lack of kind of the West playing any kind of restraining order. So what's happened in the aftermath of the Arab uprising is those all those regional players like Saudi Arabia, Turkey, Qatar, Qatar, a country like Qatar has its independent foreign policy now and it actually pushes for arming groups, jihadi groups in particular in Syria, Qatar should have been an insignificant player in any kind of regional arrangement. Instead it has become a major source of instability. And I'm arguing that all of this is a byproduct of American and Western, largely, short-sightedness, and lack of ability to think in real geostrategic terms about what it wants in, in, in the Middle East. This takes the form of the desire for humanitarian interventions, because we like to flatter ourselves by thinking that we are moral players. But this is not really the case. What ends up happening is decisions like regime change in Libya, where as much as I hated Gaddafi, what we end up with now, is far worse and will continue to destabilize the region for a long time to come. So in fact, what I want to say is it's probably high time for the West and the US to start the process of disengagement and rethinking their position in the Middle East. We look at something like Syria, where any kind of projection of certainty by other players, like Iran or Russia, genuinely confuses the US and its allies. Look at, they're asking, what sort of nefarious Clever chess game is Putin playing, whereas he's just playing the old geostrategic uh, kind of game of pursuing his interest and in propping his allies, something that the United States has completely forgotten about. So it is kind of an example of how disconnected Western and American policy is from any sense of rational uh, interest in the region that sadly and tragically ends up being much more devastating, much more destructive because it's not contained with any rational framework. I'm just going to close with one anecdote that, to my mind, summarizes how foolish and clueless American policy in Syria is, where it has been quite clear for a while that the US doesn't want for Assad to fall, because it's realized what the alternative is, the possibility of ISIS taking over, which is far worse. Yet, it maintained a program of training and equipping uh, Syrian rebels that had cost billions and ended up with having maybe four or five Syrian rebels that eventually got routed out from Syria. So last week, the U.S. ended this program, and instead, it sent an airdrop for $50 million worth of military equipment over an area of Syria, which it really didn't know who wasn't there. So it was basically symbolized a kind of, it's almost like a parody of American policy, where we're just going to fly over and drop these weapons and let's hope the good guys get them. And this is where American policy stands today. Thank you. Thank you, Carl. <laughs> um, I'd
1: like to kind of start with uh, coming back on Carl and then we can kind of come back across the table. And um, just to kind of initially ask, Carl, when we lament the kind of toothlessness of uh, Western governments in the Middle East, how do we reconcile that with both kind of testing every action that they do? You know, in some sense, both call for the West to take a more strident policy. As has Tara and the questions kind of raised, the, the, the conceptual approach raised by Rosemary uh, and started from Gilbert all seems to kind of hinge on a toothlessness that, on the one hand, every time, even limitedly, has been expressed, is kind of fairly reprehensible. Um, And then on the other side, it's kind of lacking in a way that used to shape and stabilise the region. How do we work those two things out?
3: Well, I think, interestingly, um, when you read kind of pro-intervention analysts, they actually diagnose the situation in similar terms to what I've just done. But then their solution is we need to intervene more. And we need to do more against Assad, for example. Or we need to kind of be more hands-on in Syria and places like that. And they actually go and say things like, U.S. inaction in Syria. And right, to me, this reflects the level of disconnection from reality. How can you say U.S. lack of action in Syria when you have been equipping and supporting groups on the ground? From day one, you tainted the uprising by saying, you know, making a stated goal that Assad should leave. And it's this lack of consideration that's being carried out by the the kind of the momentum of the events and wanting to project the image of the good guy that is really the problem. I think the real projection of authority is not more of this frantic action, but rather a more considered sense of action. You know, you see, there is something called diplomacy. Why is that forgotten? And we saw beginnings of that with Iran, but unfortunately, the way it was done, it was at the expense of alienating all the U.S.'s allies in the region. So it doesn't even carry enough momentum to get its allies on board on a kind of historic diplomatic lead, deal with Iran. So what I'm saying, really, let's not mistake authority with this kind of frantic type of intervention that we saw in Libya. No, we need to kind of take a step back and realize we don't need to be the movers in the area. We need to give space to local actors to kind of uh, direct the flow of events and not be rushed into ill-considered ventures from the type that we've seen before. So, in a way, what I'm asking for is a bit more consideration and a bit more, not a bit more actually, far more consideration and kind of resisting the temptation to think that we can orchestrate and micromanage the Middle East because that has been consistently proving to be wrong over the past few years. Thanks. Joba, uh, so, uh, would you agree with that? Oh, yeah.
2: No, I'm afraid. I disagree with God. Uh Well, first of all, the, the United States only called for Assad to go after several months into the uprising, after it had reached a huge mass popular uh, levels and being crushed in the most bloody uh, manner possible. And that's only then that uh, the U.S. started saying that he must go when it became absolutely clear that the situation in Syria would not stabilize, would not have any chance of stabilizing with Assad at the end. Because one point is missing in what you said, It is that if you have such bad situation, it's not only because of the West. It so happens that the two regimes where you, know, you mentioned, Syria and Libya, were the least of all countries in the region dependent on the West those in which the West had the, 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 the most limited influence. And uh, we have to acknowledge the fact that what is happening in these countries is the result of decades of absolutely terrible dictatorship which has produced the conditions for that. And that's the key point. In the same way that the, the U.S. intervention in Iraq, in Iraq, the U.S. occupation, U.S.-U.K. occupation of Iraq uh, uh, was a Terrible disaster, of course, but the, what it unleashed are, are a, is a potential that had been brewing under the Saddam Hussein dictatorship and its sectarianism. Don't forget that Syria is a country where 10% of the population as a community represent 80% of the army officers and control all the elite forces. I mean, this kind of dictatorship, which also is absolutely rotten at the corruption level. At the, I mean, you, you have a mafia running a country, ruling a country. And therefore, we have to be aware of the fact that you did not have the kind of intervention you are mentioning. The United States in the region has done, if you want, uh, two uh, intrusive interventions, as is the case uh, in, in Libya, and, and very little intervention. You have to acknowledge that the I mean, U.S. Uh, 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 commitment to support the Syrian opposition was absolutely ridiculous. And if, if they just dumped the the, 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 the the plan you mentioned, it is because they themselves acknowledge that it was ridiculous. It, it led to nothing. The, not only that, the United States had been vetoing the, de, the delivery of of, of, of defensive anti-aircraft. Weapons to the Syrian opposition from day one, and in that sense, the United States bears a direct responsibility in the killing of hundreds of thousands of Syrians by the barrel bombs and other uh, uh, aerial means of uh, of of the 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 Syrian uh, regime. So we have to keep that in mind and and uh, and see that. I mean, uh, Qaddafi had been overthrown; has been overthrown. Uh, by direct intervention, okay. Uh, I'm, I'm not going to get into that. But let me tell you one thing: How many Libyan refugees have you heard of? You have none. That is the situation in Libya. Any Libyan, any any Syrian would be very happy exchanging the situation in Libya, as bad as it is, with that of Syria, where the where the regime is still in place. That's what you would have had Qaddafi not for for them. Thank you. Um, Tara,
1: I'd like to-
0: many Libyan refugees. One of the problems, the uh, Western media isn't particularly focusing on them, but certainly uh, if one reads around, one can see there are oh, all the statistics of uh, refugees. There are plenty of Libyan refugees. I mean, that's what I've read. Right. Very much. Those coming from Libya
2: are coming from Africa, not, uh, not Libya.
0: Well, if I might say so, I think it's a very unfortunate game to get into, whether rather be in Libya or Syria right now. Okay. If they're not to be made, though, that the United States was, and the United Kingdom, were a little too hasty to pronounce the end of Assad. And there was a moment near the beginning of this horrendous war when the Russians could have been much more helpful in initially working with Assad as part of a transition that would end in his departure. But, I think it's a classic pattern with all leaders in all governments, and in this case in Washington and London, that they didn't want to give Russia any credit or any slice of the action for resolving the situation.
1: Um, Rosemary, could I ask you a little bit? Because um, I guess the, what I, I find the most difficult to get to grips with in the kind of externally in kind the of modern Middle East um, is whether or not, you know, the act between the various states and the various regional players is uh, kind of the, the beginning of a new politics kind of outside of an effective Western foreign policy. Or do you think it's the kind of end of a political process in in the in kind of no-win situation that you mentioned earlier?
0: I think in the history of the Middle East, which I've always been hearing, has had, interactions with Europe around the Mediterranean. Our histories are linked for millennia. Uh, I think we're into a new phase in relations between uh, the northern Mediterranean, the eastern Mediterranean and the southern Mediterranean. And the purpose of my opening remarks was to say we are not in a position to predict with any confidence how it's going to started in 1975 and went on until 1990 and saw many interventions, American, French, Israeli, an Israeli invasion for God's sake, and Syrian of course, and eventually it was the regional powers, once the locals were exhausted, that came up with a formula that was in effect power sharing a particular role to Syria in Lebanon. Unfortunately, this war is on a much bigger scale and the landscape demographically and geopolitically is going to change more fundamentally. But it, the analogy is there with Lebanon and the different interventions that we're going to see from now on may not be the ones that prevail. Oh. Um, and yeah just an your question though, I think we're sort of seeing both, you know, we're seeing what we're seeing is the end of the old Western order, essentially Western control in the Middle East, and yeah, the birth of a new regional politics. And certainly to echo what Phil said and Rosemary, you know, we we'll we are obviously Us, you know, that we are the main problem. But nonetheless, there is a really serious problem with Western foreign policy at the moment, and you see it in Ukraine. It's exactly the same process, and that is something that we can talk about. of magical thinking, that you can actually ignore what is going on on the ground, the reality of this extremely complex uh, situation, and just have a sort of, okay, we're going to support the Free Syrian Army, and uh, that's what's going to happen. Of course, the reality is we have this So, what is it? Is it? Well, I guess That do not reduce from what we just said, but the message is you
1: can't fix it. So, don't bark down roads and give you people to the end. Yeah,
3: I, agree. I, agree. Oh, yeah, yeah I, I just need agree. Paul, very quickly. Yeah, I, d- I just I need to build up on the, the point that Tyra made, because this gets forgotten a lot in this discussion, is once the West declares an interest and a desired outcome in any situation, then that has consequences. And that happened in Libya and happened in much more dramatic way in Syria. Now, I'm not dismissing local factors, but we don't have to take responsibility for local factors. So what the West kind of underappreciated catastrophically is you go into a place like Syria and you declare a desired outcome, and then you're surprised when the allies of Assad like Iran and Hezbollah and Russia would come in to support him. But you've already escalated that what could have been a self contained atrocious but local war, you've escalated that into a regional and internalized, internationalized war by stepping into the situation. And more catastrophically, you stepped into that
0: situation
3: not knowing what you actually wanted. And you didn't stick through it. And then at the end of it, you say, oh, well, uh, no, no. We can't actually support the Syrian opposition because we've discovered they're not what we thought they are. But that was your fault to start with. And this is unfortunately the kind of uh, confusion that prevails over Western policy. Thank
2: you. Gilbert's
1: very keen to come back, so I'm going to start with you once we take some questions from our audience as well. That's okay. we don't have a massive amount of time back under the microphone, Yeah. yeah?
0: imperial powers or the Cold War powers, perhaps coming to to other countries
1: like like Iran, uh, like Saudi Arabia, even like Qatar, the launchers should be significant, of course, because they're Western allies, they seem to have their own agenda, but I wonder,
0: Turkey and and which way it would go because um, i understood it that Turkey was
1: actually involved quite early on in shaping the political character of of the Syrian opposition before military uh, stuff was involved in stacking with Muslim brotherhood and so on as part of its own kind of agenda. So, my understanding was that that, that Turkey would be uh, uh, on the same side as uh, the the Gulf States and various um, uh, groups uh, within Syria. But in fact, not true and Please, uh, can we take the gentleman here, and if there's – is there one or two more just one. Okay, here. Yeah. Uh, one of the factors that seems
0: so powerful in the Middle East uh, and disruptive, that the panel has really addressed what he is the role of ISIS. And um, The particular question I'd like to ask the panel is it seems to be that ISIS could not have achieved the apparent There so are two more things. Uh, the question of Saudi Arabia, uh, what the world is Saudi Arabia. And finally, uh, there's been a lot of criticism of Western society. It's a car. Car's choices to be Westerners should withdraw, America should yeah. withdraw. What is your answer? What should the Western society be? What's
1: sure. your answer? Can we get the microphone uh, to the uh, woman who has her hand up in the corner? See yeah. ya. Um, and there's one more behind there. My question is to
3: Rosemary. I don't know if I understood you correctly, but I guess you said that the situation would have been better if Russia was allowed to come in uh, at, uh, at the earlier stage and have uh, a bigger slice of, of uh, I don't know, interest game that is going on
0: there. How do you imagine the West actually doing that in light of what is happening in, in Ukraine and the sanction policy against Russia? Thank you. you feel
2: Sure. sure. I, I start by the the, the the last point. Um, I disagree with Rosemary because Russia has been involved by the United States from the very early stage in the Geneva conference and this process, and 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 even by by the recognition of the UN envoys to Syria, the real blocking factor was Assad and his refusal to to seek power. That's the point. The United States from the beginning has said they are for Syria uh, in the terms of Obama for the Yemen solution. The Yemen solution was the agreement on transition for power with, with uh, Saleh stepping down. Now, regardless of what happened with that later on, but that was, has been the line for the United States. That's one. Secondly, Russia is involved in Syria from the very beginning. It's the main source of, of support for the Syrian regime militarily. Iran has been involved from the very early stage. They have been involved militarily. It's not like we are speaking of a massive Western intervention against a poor country which is isolated and has no backers. I mean, this is a country where the Russian and Iranian intervention is far, far, far beyond in size any other intervention, any other influence in the region. Keep that in mind. Don't speak in. I am mean, not speaking here to Rosemary. I'm speaking of the, the general discussion. We, we shouldn't be, you know, uh, for, forget this point. If we look at ISIS, indeed, what's the origin of ISIS? The origin of ISIS, as carl uh, uh, hinted at, uh, is is Al Qaeda in Iraq, which formed the Islamic State in Iraq, uh, which uh, reached a peak in 2006, 2007, and which the United States managed after changing tact, changing strategy, to marginalize to a certain degree. It kept simmering there, but it was uh, basically defeated. And then you had the situation that unfolded in Syria. Now, there are many indications uh, that documented that the the beginnings of ISIS in Syria were actually welcomed by the Syrian regime. And the Syrian regime, and this is also well known, has not... Uh, bombed one single time ISIS until one year ago when when you had the coalition that started uh, acting. The Syrian regime in the summer and autumn of 2011, when at a time when it was arresting thousands upon thousands of young Democrats, released from jail all the jihadists they have. This is very well documented. They released from jail all these guys that are running now the jihadist groups in Syria. Don't... I mean, we are... I hear comments here, really, which are really amazing to me. And, and so, so I mean, Assad is, a, is the most brutal, machiavellic type of dictatorship. You have to understand what, is this, what this is about. It's not to say that I'm not calling for the West to, 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 to bomb Syria or whatever. I've always been against this kind of intervention. But I think there is a duty to rescue people slaughtered by their regimes. There is a duty to rescue, and the failure of this duty to rescue is taking part in the crime. If you can stop someone from slaughtering a people and you let them do, you are responsible. Okay,
0: just, just very quickly, so, Gilbert, are you, su- you are suggesting a form of humanitarian intervention?
2: No. I am suggesting that from the beginning, The the Syrian opposition, when it was still the mainstream at the beginning 2012, you had this good window of opportunity. Should have been given defensive weapons, the defensive weapons it required. It has been not given these defensive anti-tank, anti-aircraft weapons, and this allowed the regime to crush them. And then you get, you got Qatar and all the rest coming and and funding all these jihadist groups, which actually, as I said, were started by the action of the regime itself. Which, from day one, when it was uh, purely, you know, secular democratic demonstrations, said from day one, these are jihadist activities. You know the story well.
0: Okay, Turkey, Saudi, and Russia. I went, and also I went to the panel first thing this morning, which is why are young people joining ISIS? And I think a lot was said there, which is very valuable in terms of understanding multitude of reasons why people might want to join ISIS, but the emphasis was on why you might not regard the UK as the best place on earth, and why you might take your alienation all the way to Syria. And I would suggest that the one thing that the the British could do about ISIS, since it's anti-Western, is not try to kill it by bombing it. ISIS benefits most from the kind of violent collapse and mayhem that we've got at the moment. So making that worse, I think, actively benefits groups like ISIS. They thrive on that. Uh, And they captured their arms, by the way, for arms given to Iraq by the Americans. They've got a lot of Iraqi former army officers in their ranks, and similarly on the Syrian side. The one thing that the British could do about ISIS and its charismatic attractions as played through social media is not develop a counter-narrative, but de- develop a narrative. If you identify with this society, what does it mean? Where is it going? So, there's a lot to do on the home front, the, but, but the, with Turkey, I, I should say that um Yes, they're pro-Muslim Brotherhood, but the Gulf states are not, and they were—they are—stand accused of supporting or turning a blind eye to the rise of ISIS and allowing people, recruits to grow across the Turkish border into Syria to join ISIS. In part because they were more obsessed with suppressing Kurdish nationalism, and lastly on Russia. Zubair, we go back to it. Yes, they were involved in the diplomatic process. I tell you what, I recommend the article in the current issue of Prospect about the Russian agenda. And the Russians took very badly what they felt was double crossed by the Americans at the UN over what was going to happen with the humanitarian intervention in Libya to save the people of Benghazi. And they, on their agenda, is not. Let the Americans do the same in Syria. So I'm saying that if the Americans had conceded that the Russians might be able to do something that they had technically failed to do themselves in Libya, they might be able to do something in Syria, and should have shared a little bit of the diplomatic action and let them handle Assad, not not forcing that he had to go.
3: It's precisely this. Type of lack of depth and insight that Rosemary is identifying in um, U.S. and Western attitude towards Syria and cooperation with, and possible cooperation with Russia, which I find is the real problem. And regardless of whether I'm pro-intervention or anti-intervention, what I'm inviting you to think about here is why is Western policy today, foreign policy in the Middle East, so unpredictable? Why would we go for full regime change in Libya and not consider the outcome of that and not follow it through? So regardless of where my position is that, all I'm saying is we're in a situation where things, decisions are being taken very impulsively, and ultimately what that's proving to do is create more instability and devastation. Similar situation in Syria. I mean, I buy the story, fine, let's argue that the U.S. had. Uh, you know, a Syrian opposition that it could support and it could be a force for secularism and democracy. Why didn't we do that? I have this debate with uh, kind of pro-interventionists all the time. and It's almost they're blaming me for the lack of Obama's consistency over Syria. But then what they're not realizing that this is not just some kind of uh, you know oversight, or it's become almost like a, a structural symptom of American and Western foreign policy broadly that it lacks any consistency. Why does it lack any on, in, uh, consistency? Is because it doesn't recognize what its grounding in reality is, what its aspirations are. If it wanted regime change in Syria, why didn't it follow through? Why? it's almost sitting ground now. The US, Obama is very happy now. He's going, okay, Rasta, take over the place. I'm gonna wash my hands off of this thing. So what I'm inviting you to think about here, regardless of where you think about fall on the intervention or anti-intervention angle, is this very highly unpredictable nature of Western policy. And I'm saying this is because it's completely lacking in any grounding in reality, and has become this fairy tale that's purely about moral posturing rather than real geopolitical interests.
1: Yeah, um, I was just wondering as to, basically the number of one is, as it seems to me, that in terms of intervention, we ended up growing,
0: the various um, powers around, especially recent powers, seem to have this idea that if they invest time, money uh, and sorry, the weapons into groups as as possible, that that will be like, people are cutting the energy in that hope, that by putting all the leaves, that they'll find a solution. In terms, though, of what people are saying, I was surprised because you, you mentioned a number of times about, um, about uh, defensive weapons. It seems to me that that is, if you like, trying to put, um, to, to win that, that is kind
1: to of put the trigger on to, basically, calling for intervention, or intervention by other means. If you use that weapons, call it uh, inter weapons.
0: is walking into the world, central, to the actual website to take up smoking. Thank you. have, you know, I mean, America happens to have But there are many, many, many of the, uh, you know, moderate revolutionary Syrians who are calling for a NATO-enforced long flight zone, um, including uh, the Syrian white helmets and Panic Syria. I don't know how I feel about that, but I'd like to ask the panelists. Um, and, and again, I completely agree with everything that you said, obviously the West points. to trust them, but what would you say to those Syrians who are calling for... Um, actually, if I might, I just want to go back to the previous round we talking about ISIS. Um, I do think one thing we really need to differentiate is between what's going on in the West, in terms of the attraction of a few, you know, the minority of young Westerners who are attracted to ISIS for a number of domestic reasons, and then ISIS in the Middle East, you know, and that kind of very complex. Dynamics, groups that might join up with ISIS or other, or you know, or so just, uh, I, I think they're actually two separate things, and sometimes related, of course, in that the young people are going out to fight in the Middle East. But those are separate dynamics. I think to understand what's going on why British people want to join ISIS, we have to look at home. You know, but I don't think we can entirely. Also, certainly Western intervention, I would agree, has certainly uh, contributed to the chaos Uh, rise of sort of local powers I guess in terms of that goes to someone else was uh, talking about Saudi Arabia so this is one of the the broader context of a kind of incapacity of the West to shape events in the Middle East, kind of withdraw more from the Middle East and what we do see are kind of First, you know, uh, a
2: general point. I have a, a long personal history of anti-imperialism and I don't think anyone can outbid me in this regard. But, I'm not one-sided in my anti-imperialism. Russian imperialism is not sweeter. You know, the Shechen can tell you about about Putin a lot of things you know and 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 his affinity with Assad is because they they share the same way of dealing with the popular revolts you have you have, you should not forget that if we were during the the the, the republican uh, i mean the, the the spanish civil war if i were in france i would have argued for arms delivery to the spanish republicans 100% is france not an imperialist country of course it is But you had a civil war, and you had German and Italian interventions. Everyone here has heard of Guernica. Who did Guernica? The Luftwaffe. So, should we or not be supporting these people and giving them defensive weapons? They were betrayed by even the French, even the French socialists, or left-wing, or popular front government. So, we should not forget this issue. Why, is the, why did the United States stop the program? Why is, was it a full failure in Syria? Why? Put, ask the question. What's the answer? The answer is because that was a program about training people with the condition that they only fight ISIS. They could not fight the regime. The United States don't, does not want Assad to fall. I mean, the regime to fall. They, they want Assad to step down, but the regime to remain in place. And should we blame any 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 international body uh, if they if they just say the obvious that you have a huge popular revolt in a country that wants the ruler to step down? If Washington or anybody says, "Well, we don't see any solution without without this guy stepping down," they're just stating the obvious. Why don't you blame Washington for having asked Mubarak to step down in Egypt? And if that had not happened. Where would Egypt be today? It's not that Egypt is nice today, but it would have been quite worse had Mubarak not stepped down.
3: Yeah. Uh, I don't want to be portrayed as some kind of monster who supports the murder of uh, innocent people, but I would just like us to think about this point that our interventions in the Middle East have consequences. And once we intervene, we bear responsibility for the consequences. And for people to try to turn this into an emotive issue, then we're actually losing sight of very recent history and the lessons of that history. We saw very clearly in Iraq, and I'm half Iraqi myself, and I've lived in Iraq for years, and I know the situation in Iraq, and I hated Saddam Hussein. But the moment Saddam Hussein was removed, what came afterwards was much worse. The situation that we have now in Iraq won't stabilise for decades, probably to come, and it was all as a consequence of the vacuum that we created, that the West created. We're seeing a similar. No, I'm not. I'm not. I'm not absolving him of responsibility, but I'm saying the situation today. He, he actually he, he laid the foundation for that through his action, but he's not. He didn't create the situation that happened today. Let's take responsibility for our actions. What created the vacuum in Iraq? And the rise of ISIS is the direct invasion by the U.S. and the U.K. Let's not lose sight of that. We created a similar situation in Libya, and I'm not saying the situation was necessarily better before. But since we interfered, we, we bear responsibility for that. If you want us to go around and continuing to intervene, the least we could ask is why are we intervening, and what are our out, the outcomes, the desired outcomes that we want. You say, What do you say to the white helmets in Aleppo, let's say, or the people in Syria who are demanding protection from bombardment? Well, you know what? Yemenis would also like protection from bombardment and not being bombarded by Western weapons. Palestinians would like to be protected from bombardment. Kurdish people would like to be protected from bombardment. Is that how we should run our policy? Should we go around protecting all of these people from bombardment, knowing fully well that of relationships we're into is, in fact, in most of these cases, the weapons that are being used against those people are actually Western weapons. I'm saying here, let's not be naive and moralistic in an emotive manner. Let's look at the consequences of those actions and realize the limits of our responsibility and the limits of our action. The moment we interfere in these situations we have a direct responsibility. And I'm afraid we've been t- intervening in a completely callous manner and leaving devastation everywhere we've stepped in. And it's time to step back from that. Only that I don't
0: what said, and I think we need to draw a distinction between military intervention and the responsibilities that have came to taking up arms in, a, in the name of a cause. My, my position is that in no instance, there is no example of a successful military intervention from a Western perspective. As soon as you start a war, or you enter a war, you lose control of the outcome. And so it's arrogant to think otherwise. The Saudi-UK and Saudi-US relationship gets to the nub of our difficulties in terms of what are the limits of how far we should go to make friends and do business with governments who defy the very values that we've taken up arms allegedly to defend. And I'm pleased that there is now the beginnings of a debate what is the British-Saudi relationship all about, and can we really defend the extent of it? Thank you. I've Okay. You really on that note, I'm going to, talk. So I'm to do this, I'm ask to I'm going to ask to kind of wrap up. If so we can start at that end of the table,
3: Yeah, I'm I'm going to deal with the point on ISIS because for the first time in my life when the issue of arming the Kurds against ISIS came up, I was fully for that, and I argued that that was actually a genuine humanitarian intervention, which met all the conditions that I could approve of. And we had the Yazidis stuck on the mountain, thousands of them. We had a death cult that's butchering and, and enslaving people, and they had to be stopped. Uh, but even that has consequences. Even that sort of intervention, arming the Kurds, has more potential for destabilizing the region because it will inflame Turkey, obviously, and you'd have that uh, kind of uh, threat. So even that is without its danger, and that's actually a consequence, I would say, of that American loss of authority in the region, which uh, could have kind of ameliorated a lot of uh, these internal struggles and kind of contained them within a stable security order. It wasn't an ideal one, but it was uh, far better than the security. something about ISIS, not least because the U.S. had a very direct role in creating the conditions for their rise. But what I would close with is uh, we need to stop being emotive about these issues, we need to stop being impulsive about these issues, and try to rebuild regional network and international networks that allow us to kind of take this uh, 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 explosiveness of the situation in the Middle East, and stop turning could be local struggles that could have their own kind of problems, but could be contained within local dynamics and transforming them into regional and international struggles. Thank you.
2: Right. Uh, I try not to be impulsive, Kyle, but you won't, you, won't have, you won't have me not being emotive when you have 300,000 people killed. If you think that you can deal with that without emotions, Just as you know, a matter of geopolitics, I count. I count not only because I am from there, I'm Lebanese, yes, I'm Lebanese, but uh, probably we have a different relation with with Syria or with the people or whatever. But this is a matter, as I said, of, and I'm glad actually that you brought, because I wanted to, to bring that point. You had Kobani, you had the most progressive organization in the region, the Kurdish movement, asking for Western intervention to help them. And they, had the, the United States not bombed ISIS there, Kobani would have fallen. Had the United States not dropped weapons to the Kurdish combatants in Kobani, they would have been defeated. Why don't we say anything? Why, why, why didn't you go in the streets against this Western intervention? Come on. We have to understand what we are dealing with. It's not a matter of knee-jerk reaction against any kind of intervention by the West. I fully agree with you, and I've written a lot about Iraq long before the occupation happened, to say what will happen as a result of it. And I said the very day the United States entered Baghdad, I said the result of that will be the clash of barbarisms. That is, the barbarism of the U.S. occupation will produce a counter-barbarism, and we have it. And it was called Al-Qaeda and the Islamic State in Iraq. So this is, I mean, part of the story. But we can't, I mean, I'm not advocating war, because war is there to say, who's who speaking of starting a war when it's there? I'm not advocating direct Western intervention. I'm just saying from the beginning that you, the, 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 the Syrian opposition should have been given the means to defend itself. Now, now it's it's too late, because... I mean, with the Russian intervention and all that, the only thing one, one can hope for is that all these guys can get to some agreement and stop, stop the bloodshed in Syria. But short of
0: that, it's great.
2: Uh,
1: Rosemary?
0: In dealing with ISIS, I would say one thing that we must try to do is prevent all our politicians from letting it become an ego issue, how you deal with them. You know, the whole business of being provoked and you rise to the provocation and actually you inflate the reputation of the opponent that was previously much lesser. So, uh, and we've seen this with successive wars in the Middle East, the senior people in the governments involved start to take it personally. We have to help them back away from that. Secondly, about Iran, I'm afraid I'm totally biased. I've had several trips there until under the second Ahmadinejad presidency, it became dangerous for my friends there if I wanted to visit them. So I didn't want to put them in danger. I'm with the Khatami wing of the Iranian power structure. Um, I am not going to whitewash the whole regime, not at all. I think they have a genuine power struggle and that it's not helpful of us to hand ammunition to the hardliners in Tehran because there's some lovely guys that are waiting in the shadows to take Iran in, in a direction that I think everyone would find more conducive to working with them as opposed to against them.
1: Thank you, Rosemary. And finally, Tara.
0: Um, just uh, on the uh, question of... Uh, supporting the opposition in those countries. I and mean, we do have an example of what happened in Iraq. We did have regime change and we put in place a government and that government has been one of the most brutal government that has ruled through fear, murder, pork barrel politics. I mean, we know that and has also contributed to what is basically an internal civil war in Iraq now and laid the groundwork. So we do actually have an example. The problem is intervention doesn't work. I mean, if only it did. We can see, we actually put in place a government in Iraq, and it's been a disaster. But on the question of ISIS, what to do about ISIS, I'm not sure that we do. I don't don't know that we can do anything about ISIS. I think we have a domestic problem, as I said, where some people feel extremely alienated, Um, but I think that's a different question. You know, so I think that there are things that we can do about why some British people an ISIS. And I'd be more on Rosemary's I that we have to actually have a narrative, never mind a counter-narrative, but a narrative about what multicultural what, what, Britain, well, what, what we are. But I don't know that in terms of ISIS in the Middle East, I don't know that we can do. It. And we have seen that in Iraq, there have been ex- examples uh, at periods. You know, so I'm not really sure that we, the West, can do anything which won't entirely just to make the situation sure.
1: worse. Um Can we please thank our panel for what certainly is a battle of ideas. <laughs>